It's Monday, May 24th. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast. I'm Rebecca Darst. Today, we have an interview with author Zach Carabell about his book, Inside Money. In it, he traces the rise of Brown Brothers Harriman. It's the oldest private investment bank in the nation. The book shows how the Brown Brothers played a fundamental role in transforming the U.S. from an agrarian society into a global superpower. Their story is crucial to understanding America's rise and the formation of its financial and political elite. The firm pioneered the partnership model, investing its own capital and that of its partners, not just that of outside investors. And I think it's worth taking a look back and analyzing how that affected their risk management in order to better understand how finance itself has changed. Inside Money is the name of a new book about the rise of Brown Brothers Harriman, the storied investment partnership whose ascent in 19th and 20th century America parallels and in many ways predicts the financialization of everything. Author Zach Carabell has written 12 previous books on economics, finance, and American history. He's also a practitioner of finance, founder of the Progress Network at New America, president of River Twice Research and River Twice Capital, and he previously was a head of Global Strategies at InvestNet and president of Fred Alger and Company, Zach Carabell. It's so great to talk to you about this book. I'm excited. Thank you so much for having me on. So why write a book about Brown Brothers Harriman right now? That is a very good question that I <laughs> seem to be being asked a lot, which is good because it means someone's paying attention. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to write something about the arc of American history through the lens of money. Mm -hmm. And there's almost no firm that's been around for the entire arc of independent United States history. And Brown Brothers Harriman certainly fits that bill. And so that was the initial impetus, kind of a way of writing about money and the ease of money and the ease of losing it, making it, creating it, and how wealth creation in the 19th century translate into American power in the 20th. And again, their Brown mm -hmm. Brothers, is, we can get into this, obviously, totally at the epicenter of all that. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't appreciate nearly as much is the way in which the culture of Brown Brothers, which I initially found somewhat difficult to get jazzed by, because it really is a group of stolid, steeped in rectitude, Presbyterian, yeah. honorable bankers. <laughs> and yeah. I found as I went into the, the narrative that that spoke a lot to us today in a way that I didn't expect. The rise of 19th century finance, the name that comes to mind is J.P. Morgan, right? <laughs> right. You know, there, there are many other flashier families. I mean, you think about the Vanderbilts and the Warburgs and the Schiffs and the Rothschilds and, and yep. the, the Morgan Enterprise. Why Brown Brothers Harriman? So first of all, other than the Vanderbilts, and there's a great book about uh, the Commodore by T.J. Stiles, which I, I highly recommend. But all of those are 80 years later. Yeah, okay. Alexander Brown comes to the United States in 1800. And there's a good, you know, 80 years of history of what Brown Brothers does. None of that necessarily makes it worth writing a book, right? Just because you're around and you live a long time doesn't mean that you've lived an interesting life. Mm -hmm. But in fact, like there is a reason why Henry Ward Beecher, who was the celebrity preacher of his day from the Brooklyn yep. Plymouth Church, I mean, people would come across from Manhattan to show up the way we'd show up to a blockbuster movie or a, a Broadway play. Mm -hmm. He repeatedly rails against Brown Brothers in the 1850s because they were the very definition of what a lot of people thought of as American trade and finance capitalism in those years. Mm -hmm. So they are a big deal, capital B, capital D, into the Civil War. You know, interestingly, on your question, one of the reasons they don't resonate quite as much as the Rockefellers and the Morgans and the other is they really abjure speculation. They are not interested in high risk endeavors 
that also mm-hmm. have a high risk of loss. And we remember those names that you just yeah. rattled off, largely because they're involved in railroad finance. But most people mm-hmm. involved in railroad finance went bust. So it's interesting. You talk about their reticence, their risk aversion, the risk aversion of the firm, even though they were a capital B, capital D, big deal. Uh, the Brown Brothers Harriman partnership in which not just the firm's capital is exposed, but the partner's capital is exposed. Was that an innovation or an approach unique to Brown Brothers Harriman? Did they bring that to finance? Absolutely not. No. Okay. That was how most of these firms were structured really mm-hmm. until the 1980s, um, a little bit the 1970s. and. You know, part of what the lesson of the book ultimately is, is that there are multiple forms of capitalism to be chosen from and that human beings have used over the past several hundred years. The shareholder bet the farm on other people's money and try to make as much as possible as quickly as possible is one variant of capitalism that has predominated in our contemporary culture. But Mm -hmm. it's not the only one. And it sure wasn't the partnership model of most of these early banking houses in the 19th century. Now, you mentioned in the book, and you alluded to it a little earlier, that the Brown Brothers enterprise survived several panics in the 19th century, which, I mean, there were a number of them over the course of the century that were absolutely ruinous to many people. You also write about the the Jeffersonian cultural model that prevailed in the early years of, of the United States and, you know, is still part of the culture today, sort of viewed finance with disdain, with a right. degree of disdain. Was Brown Brothers' ability to survive panics relatively unscathed, something that attracted scrutiny or conspiracy theorizing to the degree that, you know, because nowadays you hear government sacks or, you know, that kind of, right. even today you hear a certain suspicion toward any company that seems to have either managed their risk or profited disproportionately from panics that have ruined ordinary people. So I think it was less the conspiracy theories in the 19th century and much more the conspiracy theories of the 1960s and 1970s that saw Brown Brothers as kind of the center of a secretive, closed establishment cabal because they all went to Yale and they were all in skull and bones. Mm -hmm. In the 19th century, and you're totally right, I mean, there's metronomic every 20 years in the 19th century, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893, and then 1907, there's a financial crisis like the 2008 2009 financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And what that did is every time that happened and people were just shattered and lost money and these, there was no federal deposit insurance corporation. When there were runs on the bank, it meant people ran to the bank to get their money. And if you didn't run quickly enough, the bank ran out of money. Mm -hmm. So it was more that resentment at the financial classes Mm -hmm. always followed these crises. So there was a backlash, not just against Brown brothers, but a kind of as you said, a Jeffersonian backlash. We shouldn't be speculating. We shouldn't be using paper money. We shouldn't be using flimsy paper promises. We should be grounding our society and our democracy on yeoman farmers, on the land, independent freeholders, and not all this airy-fairy financial engineering of the day, mm-hmm. the Hamiltonian part, you know, and Hamilton's a big deal now because of Lin-Manuel Miranda, but That was the epochal tension in the United States between finance, money, making money, banks, and the heartland and the people who worked and plowed the land or ran a small business. And every single crisis, it's not just Brown Brothers, but their entire class comes under fire. When you talk about that tension between the farming agricultural class and the money men on you know, in the big city, the middle ground between that, the area where both sides can maybe come together is in something like infrastructure investment. Right. I wonder if you talk about 
Brown Brothers' influence on, for example, railroad expansion? Because they had something to do with the first public offering of shares in, a, in the railroad, right? The B&O? Right. So Brown Brothers, again, if you're going to talk about important moments in American history, yeah. the first railroad is a big deal because without the first, you don't launch everything else. And they underwrite the first steam locomotive pulled railroad on iron tracks mm-hmm. in the United States, which is the Baltimore and Ohio, the B&O of monopoly fame, begins in 1828. And they underwrite it. They are part of the major bank of Baltimore and they do it as a public works. Mm-hmm. So Alexander Brown really believed that unless Baltimore built this railroad, it was going to hopelessly fall behind New York, which was thriving because of the Erie Canal, mm-hmm. and even Philadelphia, which was doing its own canal building. And they fund this railroad because the federal government at the time, I mean, as you know, one of the big struggles in 19th century America is the federal government. Many people didn't believe the federal government should underwrite infrastructure, didn't feel that mm-hmm. was part of its mandate constitutionally. And they kind of took it upon themselves to say, well, Someone has to take care of the public good and the collective good here. And and it's not going to be government. It's going to be us and private industry and private citizens who raise money through a, a bond offering. And they make no money on the B&O. I mean, the B&O ultimately makes some money for its shareholders 20, 30 years later. But this is not a money maker for them. It's a public works. As an interesting follow-up, it seems like they had a vision for the expansion of America and this notion of the public good. Let's talk a little about their relationship to slavery yeah. and cotton, because they were, you know, as you convey in the book, the Brown brothers were themselves vociferously opposed to slavery, and they supported the abolition of slavery in the UK, but they profited handsomely from the cotton trade, and they could have opted out and did not. Yeah, no, they are totally complicit yes. in, in slavery and the cotton trade. Mm-hmm. And they are one of the largest cotton merchants in the world, because they have a, you know, one of the sons, William Brown, goes to Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And you could have written on an entire other history about just how important they are to British financial history because the partners of what becomes Brown Shipley become the governors of the Bank of England during the Great Depression, members of parliament. And like a lot of the merchants of Liverpool, a lot of the North northern merchants hated the system of slavery, but just not enough. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah, they, okay. they, they didn't like it, uh-huh. but they sure weren't going to opt out. And I guess what I try to point out in the book is there should be no sugarcoating that. There should be no pretense that it was anything other than complicity in a system even they believed to be evil and immoral. At the same time, you know, unless you didn't wear cotton, which everybody mm-hmm. did in, in the UK and in the United States, you were complicit, profiting from or benefiting from the system. Yeah. And a huge amount of the northern economy, the profits of the cotton trade were widely part of the northern economy up until 1860. So was the sort of implied hypocrisy of, or the incongruity, let's say, of the Brown brothers' position on slavery unusual for the time or really more typical? I think it really was typical. And it's why we look at people like William Lloyd Garrison as kind of an oddity, you know, the the great abolitionist. Yeah. If it had been so ubiquitous, it wouldn't have been an oddity. Yeah. And, you know, even, I mean, this is a whole other gazillions of books and discussions yeah. have been had about this, but yeah. the, the reason why the Civil War kind of happens is because the United States was a slave economy yeah, yeah, as a full unit, not just the South where the actual slaves were. And ending that meant ending slavery. Right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So we talked a little bit, but you alluded to this a little earlier, but trading houses have often been based on family relationships because of this trust element and blood is thicker than water, et cetera. At Brown Brothers, there were the family ties you know, among the partners, there were some religious commonalities and that they were very staunch Presbyterians, et cetera. There was a disproportionate number of Yale graduates. And together with this idea that there's something 
in the culture of the partnership that transcends money, that it's not just about money. All of these factors, I think, and maybe you agree, contribute to this enduring construct of the WASP establishment in New York. Talk about that and how much of this construct do we owe to Brown Brothers specifically? So it would be hard to find another firm that is as articulate and consistent about the ethos that you just articulated than Brown Brothers. And that there's this idea of money cannot be the explicit object of an enterprise, Mm -hmm. which isn't to say they didn't want to make money. They obviously did want to make money and they wanted their clients to make money and they very happily made a lot of it, but they didn't treat money as the apex of their ambition. They treated social cohesion and being embedded in a system that was flourishing as the apex. And and they were very clear about this. Again, the building of the BNO was done because Alexander believed that unless Baltimore thrived, his firm in Baltimore wouldn't thrive. Ultimately, he was totally right about that. That's why Brown Brothers, the locust goes to New York, not to Baltimore. That becomes a creed, it really beginning in the 1880s, 1890s, when the children and the grandchildren of, of, of that generation start going to the American version of the English boarding schools, you know, the Grottons mm-hmm. and the Lawrencevilles and the St. George's. And over. <laughs> and they're sort of taught these lessons of with great power come great responsibilities, mm-hmm. the Spider-Man theory of history. Yeah. And that is then inculcated into this class. And by the 60s, right, our generation started thinking like, oh, what a crock. Mm-hmm. You know, all this self-serving claptrap <laughs> as a smokescreen for you just wanted power and money, uh-huh. but you cloaked it in noble language. Give me a break. Yeah. But I think you have to somewhat delve into the fact that there was a whole series of generations that for better and for worse, you know, believed their own mantra. Now, can you talk a little about the influence or the lineage of Brown Brothers in the uh, formation of the 20th century global financial Because there were many people with ties to Brown Brothers Harriman who were, quote unquote, as you put it in the book, present at the creation right. <laughs> moment. And I should mention that, you know, my co-host here on News Items, he's not here right now, but John Ellis is you know, a grandson of Prescott Bush, as you, I'm sure you know. <laughs> right. So Prescott Bush, who John knows better than anyone, yeah. is the patriarch of the Bush dynasty. And, you know, among his children was George Herbert Walker Bush, Mm -hmm. named because Prescott Bush married the daughter of George Herbert Walker, who had been the president of Harriman's Endeavors, Averill Harriman, who then himself was the inheritor of E.H. Harriman's railroad fortune. And a triad and probably even a quartet of Brown Brothers partners from the 1930s into the 1950s, Prescott Bush, who became a two-term senator from Connecticut from 1952 to 1960, Averill Harriman, who went on to serve literally multiple roles in the Roosevelt, Truman, and then Kennedy administration, as well as serving two terms as governor of New York, and Robert Lovett, who most people don't remember today, but was almost single-handedly the creator of the Air Force during World War II, created the B-29 Super Fortress Bomber that dropped the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Then he becomes Undersecretary of State to George Marshall and then under Secretary of Defense, and then Secretary of Defense during the Korean War. And, and this group is hugely influential. There were a lot of other influential people. Mm-hmm. That's not about the firm Brown Brothers Harriman as much as it's about who was running the firm and what they believed to be the role mm-hmm. of those with 
you know, money and influence to serve the public good in a way that, again, that 60s generation, and I think a lot of people today, judge to be Mm self-serving. Look, I don't believe that everybody is just venal and hypocritical. And I suppose if you kind of believe that, you probably don't buy into a lot of what I'm talking about. But they were really central to the architecture of the world that we're living in today. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think to understand it, you kind of have to understand why was free trade created and the the World Trade Organization? Why is there a Pentagon? And why is there a United Nations? And why is there a World Bank? And I'm not saying all three of them single-handedly created those things, but they're part of a pretty narrow cohort that create these things. Well, I mean, even in the 19th century, for example, as you reference in the book, I mean, it sounds like Brown Brothers' letters of credit, Brown Brothers' paper were regarded as semi-sovereign, right? I mean, they were almost, you know, before federal money, that's as good as it's going to get, right? I mean, Yeah. I think one of the underappreciated outgrowths of the Civil War were these two bills to create paper money mm-hmm. and to allow the government to, to issue debt. And I agree. I mean, that, that's not as dramatic as the Gettysburg Address and Antietam, but it's a pretty important aspect of the world we are currently inhabiting. Yeah. Because before that, the only paper that was credible were private banks like Brown Brothers issuing it, because there were a lot of other banks issuing it that was just worthless. I mean, paper that proved to be worthless. And again, trust, reputation. They then go on to create some of the first traveler's checks before American Express, same principle. Now, see, one of the things I think is interesting about your book is that aside from being an author and a historian, you're also a market practitioner. You've been in financial markets for a long time. And so you're able to kind of offer these asides, noticing just the Brown Brothers' approach to certain things like, you know, their risk management, always being, you know, constantly being hyper aware of their risk exposures at any moment, not getting addicted to trading their own product, as you mentioned. As a markets person, do you see any bits of uh, enduring wisdom or market chestnuts from the Brown Brothers approach that someone in the markets today might find useful? Look, I buy into what I think is is a relatively simple statement about contemporary finance capitalism mm-hmm. based on all these companies going public in the 80s mm-hmm. and then at least through 2008 through 2009 having immense capital at their disposal that wasn't their own. Right. And then basically being able to reap disproportionate rewards without personally being exposed to the risks. And I don't think that's a healthy system right. as the core of the system. And Brown Brothers, I mean, basically generations of this firm preached and acted from the following principle. Every day that you go to sleep, your books, your commitments, your business dealings better be secure enough so that if you wake up the next morning and the world has changed, you're not screwed. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that they were risk averse. It's just that they understood that managing risk was part of surviving mm-hmm. over the long term. And they were in it for the long term. They wanted a multi-generational family firm. I think that's healthy given that I think money is power and it's volatile. Yes. And unleashed promiscuously as it was in the 19th century, you know, it will it will flow in like the tide and and inundate in a initially positive way and then almost always destructive way. And you should respect that. Yeah, I don't mean in the book about the present that that should be the only governing factor of the financial world, because it's also true that the Brown Brothers mentality wouldn't have funded the internet boom. And it, you know, it wouldn't underwrite Elon Musk. Right. And, and I think a dynamic economy needs that too. But you don't want that to be at the heart of the system. You want that to be on the periphery of the system. Yeah. As you mentioned, in the 19th century, money was promiscuous and volatile. 
Brown brothers were very conscious of their risk. I think one thing I would I would observe about that is that there were a lot of information asymmetries that benefited Brown brothers that nowadays with so much we're so technologically driven. I mean, there's so much there's so little information edge, I think, in financial markets. And that affects the ability of of companies to to gain some kind of edge in that way. Do you agree? Yeah, no, totally. And part of the reason why they are at the epicenter of foreign exchange, like they basically create the first foreign exchange. What's a pound worth versus a dollar? Is because there were no published rates. Mm-hmm. And these things fluctuated largely based on supply and demand, which took a long time to figure out. You know, it took several, uh-huh. it took eight weeks to get across the Atlantic or wh- whatever it took yeah. before steam engines and then after. And as you put it, these information asymmetries gave those people who had trusted information networks mm-hmm. a real advantage. But the 20th century and the telegraph and then the telephone, that's kind of gone. And Brown Brothers then starts kind of making money, you know, the, the less old fashioned way, it, it does deals. Mm-hmm. But even then, its deals are relative to whatever the partners thought they could lose, not relative to whatever the partners hoped they could gain. And that's also a different metric. People have talked about finance capitalism and and the financial system. And now it's not really banks because they're so regulated. It's more private equity or venture funds. And again, I don't think these people are like evil. And I've, I've played in these worlds. But I do think the system engenders bad behavior. Yes. Because... We collectively bear the risks and they privately reap the profits. Right. You know, that's a skew that is unhealthy. It is definitely unhealthy. (laughs) Do you think that those horses are out of the barn? When we talk about the Brown Brothers approach to credit and risk and, you know, those sorts of exposures, is this pure nostalgia talk or is it too late to reintroduce certain elements of that principal agent alignment back into the financial system? Yeah. So first on the nostalgia thing, I know that at times my book probably skirts with that. I try and I certainly believe in in what I write and what I speak about that there's no going back. And so nostalgia as a thing in and of itself, I don't necessarily buy into. It's more, what are the constructive elements of something humans did that we could reintegrate or integrate differently into the present? Mm -hmm. Because again, I, I wouldn't want to go back to a world where you know, for instance, you and I couldn't be having this conversation. I, because of my own cultural upbringing, you because of your gender, we would have been X'd out of yeah. a, a lot of the epicenters that I write about in this book. And I, you know, I have no interest in going back to that world. Right. And I don't actually think government can overly mandate culture. So that's part of the problem of regulation. It can, mm-hmm. it can prevent certain behavior, but it can engender a certain culture. So as idealistic and, and weirdly utopian as it is, I do believe that one of the lessons is about how you can run a company and how you can think about your own yeah. your own kind of definition of capitalism, right? It's as opposed to someone's going to come in and prevent excesses. Ultimately, the thing that prevents excesses, and we've all learned this in the past you know, bunch of years politically, is our own collective behavior, yeah. not what we're told to do. Well, this was a fantastic book, Inside Money. I highly recommend it for anyone who's uh, interested in the secret history of Wall Street. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for a great conversation. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. And thanks again to Zach Carabell for joining me. His book's full title is Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We will see you again tomorrow for a round of news analysis between me and my co-host, John Ellis. See you then. <laughs>